so we are made to live for Him, and we're made to live for Him every single day. Let's study that this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8. I hope the Lord has been speaking to you through our studies in Acts. I know that I have learned more about the early church, and I've had my heart really impressed by the Spirit about the power of God to use ordinary people. I don't know about you, but I'm an ordinary guy. I am nothing special. And no offense to you, but you're nothing special either. Some of you are, but you know, you know what I mean by that, right? I can say that as your pastor. But how does God use ordinary people? And we've seen it, how he used people that continuously failed him and continuously didn't get it and continuously didn't trust him. And yet when the power of the Holy Spirit came on them, they were world beaters. It was amazing the transformation that took place. Now, if you've received Jesus Christ, that same transformation has taken place in your life and in my life. So we have the opportunity every day to serve the Lord and to honor the Lord and to talk about the Lord and to make a difference in people's lives. And I hope that these studies also have, have reoriented your thinking about ministry and about church. Because really, when we study the book of Acts, it, it confronts some of the patterns and some of the traditions that we have fallen into that are are more man-made and more self-oriented than God-made and spirit-led. And we have to look at those um, because some of them we've been doing so long that they become more important to us than what the Lord actually teaches. So every time we study the Word of God, we need to have our hearts open to the Holy Spirit to teach us what we need to know and what we need to change. Because as Christians, as churches... We, we get into that comfort zone, right? We get into what we know and what's familiar and what seems right because we've been doing it as long as we can. The worst phrase that a church can say is, well, we've always done it that way. Because then it means that those traditions are more important than what God wants us to do. And we want to always be open to how the Lord is going to lead us. And that includes times of change. That includes times of transition. It includes times where the assignment that we have on a daily basis is altered. And we see that all throughout the book of Acts. We especially see it starting here in chapter 8, which is another one of those transition points we've talked about throughout uh, our study of the book so far. Now the first believer has been martyred. Now there has been blood that's been shed. And the opposition at this point gains even more momentum. But the spirit here as we study the first part of chapter 8, gives us a foreshadowing, even in the first line of chapter 8. He, he gives us an advanced picture of what's about to happen and how he's going to work in an amazing and powerful way to take the life of this one who was so agreeable to the death of Stephen, and he's going to use him in powerful ways. Let's just read the first five verses. We're going to study down to verse 24 this morning, but let's just start with this first section. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, they didn't wait. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, it's very significant that Luke mentions Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, 
because here he's setting up a transition in, in Saul's life. And it's going to show the power of the gospel to transform lives because he's going to go from one who had the coats at his feet, who's agreeing, who's excited, who thinks it's a good thing that Stephen's being martyred, who then becomes the lead persecutor of the church, the one who would go from holding the coats to now going into people's homes, men and women, dragging them out, taking them to prison, condemning them before there were any charges filed. He was the one who would lead that. He's going to go from that position to the one who would become the leading advocate, the leading proponent, the primary evangelist for Jesus Christ. And the same passion that we see here in verse 2 and verse 3, where he's excited about what he's doing, that passion then is, is going to change and it's going to be just as passionate and more about advancing the gospel as it was for stopping the gospel. But first, we see him as angry and hostile. And he's right in the center of this persecution that begins. The proponents of the gospel are energized. Blood gets spilled. And it's like a feeding frenzy of lions. As soon as the blood gets spilled, the same day the persecution takes hold. And what's ironic about that, what shouldn't be lost on us, is that they had rejected the blood that was spilled for them, for their sins, for our sins, for my sins, for your sins, by Jesus Christ. They, they had rejected that blood. And yet when the blood of one of his disciples gets spilled out, they go after it. They don't see it. And they don't realize that by violently opposing the gospel, they actually help to advance the gospel. How many know that God turns things like that? They stand against it. They start to persecute. They start to throw believers in, in jail. And what happens? We see it in verse 4. Those who are preaching the word then become scattered. What did Jesus said? You're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to go into Jerusalem. And then Judea and Samaria. Don't think that's accidental that the Holy Spirit mentions both of those in verse 1. You're going to go into Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world, chapter 10 and beyond, and you're going to be witnesses of me. By opposing the gospel, they didn't realize that they were playing into God's hand. God said, I'm going to move you. I'm going to change you. And in fact, we see in verse 1 that he pretty much moved everybody out of Jerusalem, taking them out of what they knew and out of what was familiar and comfortable, except for the disciples. Now, that word disciples or apostles, probably, we can't know for sure, but we have to assume that it refers either to the 12 or to that original group of 120 from chapter 1. really doesn't matter because we don't want to miss the point here. Every detail in Scripture that the Holy Spirit gives is important. And he gives those three words at the end of verse 1 that, that give us a spiritual principle that we need to spend some time on. The persecution moved the church into action. And the persecution moved, especially the newer believers, out of their comfort zone and scattered them into different areas of the world. And you remember our study last Sunday night at prayer meeting? Wasn't that a wonderful service? I'm so glad so many of you came to that. What a time of blessing to be in the presence of the Lord. You remember our study? We talked about how God allows us to go to Egypt. How he sometimes purposely takes us through times in Egypt to mature us in our faith and to draw us closer to him. Now that 
principle is not that hard for us to get. We see it in our lives. We know that it's true. We can submit to it. And, and we often see the benefit of God's presence and God's leading in that. But it starts to bother us when it becomes a continuous point of refining by the Holy Spirit. Because as humans, we're creatures of habit. We don't like change. We don't like things being different because we usually associate change with something unhappy. So when something takes a different turn, our first instinct is not to be full of joy and full of contentment. And the Lord knows that. And the Lord works with that because he knows we're human. However, if we continue to be resistant to what's uncomfortable, that's when the problem comes in. Because not only does our resistance then affect those people around us negatively, but it also uh, affects our desire because we want to stay in what's comfortable. And listen, when we stay in what's comfortable, it shows a resistance in our faith and a resistance in our yieldingness to the Lord. I call this chronic dissatisfaction. When there's chronic dissatisfaction in your life, it's signaling a latent selfishness. In other words, I want it my way. I'm not going to be satisfied until I get it my way. I'm going to make everybody unhappy because I'm not getting my way. It's kind of like Lucy in the old Charlie Brown strips. You remember? She's never happy. She likes being miserable and she likes making people miserable around her. Because at her core, Lucy, didn't plan on talking about Lucy this morning, but go with this, okay? You're with me, right? At their core, Lucy's selfish. And here's what's surprisingly effective about the way the enemy deceives. He causes us to think, if I would just get my way, I'd really be happy. But the reality is, even if you get your way, you're never happy. And we don't believe it, but chronic dissatisfaction then slowly infects every single area of our life. It affects our marriage relationship. It affects how we parent our kids. It it hinders relationships with friends. It starts to play out at our job and we obsess about our finances and our house isn't right and and, and our material possessions. We don't have enough and we want what's better and and all this kind of stuff. And then here's where it really affects. It starts to infect the church. I don't like that song. I don't like the lighting. I don't like the temperature. I don't like the Bible that we use. I don't like the carpet. I don't like the bulletin when we have one. I, I don't I don't like I don't like I don't like. I want it my way. I want to dress like I want. I want to do whatever I want. I want to come in and out. I want to have coffee in the service. I don't want to have coffee in the service. I don't want the choir to sing. I want the choir to sing more. Have you ever heard this before? Chronic dissatisfaction creeps into a church. And then it starts to affect our level of service. And we don't want to serve because it's not how we want. This is why I believe Philippians 4.11 is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Because he says, I've learned to be content in every circumstance. And guys, that needs to become an important value and priority in our walk. Because to be adaptable and to be humble is to show that you really trust the Lord. If I'm adaptable today, Lord, whatever you want, do whatever you need. I was made to live for you. We just sang about it. And I give my life as a sacrifice. Now, are those just words or is that the reality? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is reasonable that God would expect that. So if I'm a living sacrifice, then God can do whatever he wants. 
He can change things in my life. He can bring Egypts. He can bring joy. He can move me. He can change me. He can affect my life. He's God and I'm not. So if I'm a living sacrifice to Him, then I have to be adaptable. Because guess what? God doesn't want us to be stagnant. There is no growth when things are stagnant. Just go down to a bayou in Louisiana and look at the water. There's nothing happening. Growth comes from the rain of heaven. It comes from God moving and shaping and adapting and refining. And when that's going on, we have to say, Lord, I don't understand all the time, but I'm so confident in you because you'll never fail me. So I'm going to adapt. I'm not going to wait for what I want that just satisfies me. I want to satisfy you. That's a completely different way of thinking. And, and you know what? I got to tell you, I got to commend you as a church. I have been so encouraged over the last year watching your commitment to that concept. It's not easy what we're doing. It's a different type of church for a lot of you. Style of worship, emphasis on prayer, how we study, what our structure is, where we meet, how mobile we are sometimes. We go here and there and back and forth and we're downtown, we're uptown, we're side town, we're over town. I don't know where we are this week. Three weeks we're going down to the women's club again. But I've been so encouraged that you have been people that have been willing to call on the Lord and just follow his leading and just trust the spirit to guide us. To see so many of you last Sunday night at prayer meeting, I can't tell you how much that encouraged me. And it was people from all ages and backgrounds. It just came, we want to just call on the Lord. Comfort is not our priority. I'm sorry to break that on a beautiful February morning. Comfort is not our priority. Knowing and loving the Lord and yielding ourselves to Him is. And these new believers here in Acts chapter 8 needed to remember that early on. Because very quickly, the Lord says, this is not a social club. This is not a place where you're going to be comfortable. There's something required. And we have to imagine in a group of 20, 25,000 people, that they were in it for all the Facebook friends. Ah, there's a big movement going on, and yeah, I'll, I'll commit my life to the Lord. Now, I don't, I'm not being crass here. We're going to see evidence of this in verse 18. But, but there has to be in a group that large, some who were following that innate human tendency that, that, that this is a wonderful thing to be a part of. So the Lord uses the opportunity, look back at the text, of this heavy persecution to spread the people out. And he leaves the apostles in Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Why did God leave the apostles there and send everybody else out? I think there are a couple different reasons for this. One is that they were mature in their faith and they knew how to stand up to the religious leaders because at this point the religious leaders are starting to feel power and leverage. And the disciples had already stood up against them. They already been the ones who had said, you're not going to tell us what to do. So God kept them there to keep stability in Jerusalem because if he took all the apostles out, then you've got a bunch of new believers that are going to get eaten alive by these religious leaders. So he keeps them there. Second, their influence was strong and well-known. People were still being drawn to the gospel through them. And then third, they had the wisdom and perspective to keep the church calm. 
Because Saul's going house to house and he's starting to drag people out and take them to prison. And rather than the church panic and say, what are we going to do? The apostles were there and said, everybody calm down. We've been through this before. We ourselves have been in jail twice. And the Lord delivered us out of that. So, so keep calm. Because the attack at this point is very overt. There's no more hesitation. There's no more fear of the crowd. We don't know why it turned, but it did. But I want you to notice, look back at verse 4. I want you to see the boldness of those who were scattered. They didn't complain about their new assignment. They didn't say, well, we don't like this environment, Lord, because Samaria is so far out of our comfort zone. You remember the reaction when Jesus was at the well and he's talking to the woman at the well and the disciples come up like, what are you doing talking to a Samaritan? So there was a great discomfort with Samaria. I'll explain that in a minute. So, so now the Lord's taking them into Samaria and we don't see a word of complaint. Instead, what we see in verse 4 is that they went out fearlessly and they're preaching the word and they're proclaiming Christ. Now those two things are intertwined. Preaching the word and proclaiming Christ. If you are talking about, teaching about, preaching the word of God, whether it's to a child or whether it's from a pulpit, if you are talking about the word of God, you will invariably be talking about Christ. And all pastors, all ministers, myself included, must be measured by that. We must be measured by exalting Christ and bringing people to know Christ and receive Christ and love Christ. Because if we are not talking about Christ, our teaching is worthless. Talking about how we have our needs met and how we have victory and how we're happy and how we experience joy. All wonderful things. It is only valid if we understand and declare that salvation and satisfaction and joy is only found in Christ. It is false teaching to say you can find joy without mentioning Jesus Christ. So every pastor that preaches, every teacher that teaches, every child care worker that's talking to children about the Lord must talk about Christ. It's a prerequisite. There's no substitute. And that's illustrated here. We know that news travels fast. So when the stories about the persecution start to disseminate throughout the region, we would assume that the, that the listeners would be a little reticent. They've heard what's happened in Jerusalem. Well, they're starting to drag all the people that confess the name of Jesus Christ out and they're putting him into jail. And there's this guy, Saul, and he is awful. And, 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 and he's taking everybody. And boy, they're going to come and talk to us. And we better be quiet. We better not listen to this. But look back at the text. It's so wonderful in verse 6. Philip goes into Samaria. And Samaria was a place where the Jews were despised and where the, where the Jews despised them. Two reasons for that. When the Jews were exiled in Babylon in 538, when they came back, the Samaritans had occupied the, the real estate. They had taken over the land. And when the Jews came back in and tried to resettle, the Samaritans said, no, this is our land. So there was an ongoing animosity between the two. The other frustration the Jews had with the Samaritans is some of the Samaritans had intermarried with the Gentiles, which was impure in the sight of the law. So, so there was great hostility. And the hostility was so strong between the Jews and the Gentiles that each of their religious leaders said, have absolutely nothing to do with the other group. Don't go into their area. Don't talk to them. 
Don't have any relationship with them. Don't speak to them. And Josephus, the great historian, says throughout the first part of the first century, which is our time frame here, that there were all kinds of violent episodes between Jews and Samaritans. So there are at this point, Acts chapter 8, verse 4, multiple reasons for the apostles not to go to Samaria and for the Samaritans not to listen. But look at verse 6. As they proclaimed Christ, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in the city. Oh, isn't that awesome that they go in and as they talk about Christ, which would have been the last thing that would have been safe, that the crowds with one mind say, we need this. We need to hear this. And as the apostles start to do miracles and as demons are cast out and the lame start to walk, exactly the power that Jesus had said you're going to have in the book of Acts, that, that as that happens, that people are receiving Christ and they're full of joy and that the whole area becomes full of praise for God. That's the power of the gospel. It can change anybody's life and can give a new relationship to even our worst enemy. If you have a person that you are at odds with and you love the Lord, if you can get them to love the Lord too, that relationship's going to be changed. But let's keep on reading about what happens. Look at verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in a city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what's called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the gospel, excuse me, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, that's an important detail, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon, verse 18, here's the, here's the crucial point. When Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that none of what you said may come upon me. Now, in Samaria, there's this man named Simon. And Simon, as well known 
as an amazing magician. Now, we're not talking David Copperfield here. We're not talking illusion. We're not talking something that's a sleight of hand. He actually had been given power, presumably by the devil, to somehow alter reality. If you want an example of this in the Old Testament, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, you remember that he throws down his his staff and it becomes a snake, and then the Egyptian magicians throw down their staffs and they become snakes too. So there are people that had some sort of, of evil power to be able to alter reality. And apparently Simon was so capable at it that everyone, young to old, gave attention to him. It's the same phrase as we saw in verse 8. And he was so respected, so to speak, that they called him the great power of God. But it wasn't true power from the true God. It was power from the God of this world. And power from the God of this world is always temporary, inauthentic power. The enemy never offers anything that is eternally satisfying. He never offers anything that is genuine and good. Everything that the devil promotes is fraudulent and destructive, personally and spiritually. So the text says that, that there was this constant contest, or we see that there's this constant contest that he wages against the Lord to try to deceive people away from what's true and to try to steal credit from God. But here's how we know the power of God. Look back at verse 12 for a minute. I love verse 12 of Acts chapter 8 because of that word right in the middle where it says, but. People were paying attention to Simon and for a long time they respected him and they called him powerful. But when Philip walked into town and started to preach the gospel and the name of Jesus Christ, everybody's attention shifted. And people started to get saved and baptized. The Spirit emphasizes baptism there, not because baptism is required for salvation, but to show us that there was a willingness of the people to put a public testimony on their faith. This wasn't just an internal decision that they could hide so they wouldn't be persecuted. People got saved and they got baptized so they would say, I'm saved. And I want everybody to know about it. So the enemies of the Jews, despite the threat of persecution, despite the threat of being in jail, were openly confessing Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And the text tells us that apparently Simon himself professed faith in Christ. And when he gets around true power, when he starts walking around with Philip and seeing what Philip was doing, then he is amazed by the difference between the power that he got from the devil, which is fraudulent and ineffective, and the power that Philip has, which is true and holy and from the Lord. And he's stunned. Now word gets back to Jerusalem, what's going on in Samaria. So the apostles send out Peter and John. And Peter and John come out in the text to pray that all the new believers will receive the Holy Spirit because at that point, they had only been baptized. Now that raises some questions. That causes us, or it should cause us, to ask some questions of the text. Because we believe that a believer receives the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. That the Holy Spirit indwells us when we publicly declare our, our faith in Christ. And that baptism is just a public declaration of our faith. But the text seems to show in chapter 8 
that it's a different order. So how do we reconcile that? What do we do with that? Because it says they were saved, they were baptized, and then they received the Holy Spirit. What we need to see first, and I want you to listen really well here, is that the people were so changed by the gospel and so eager to tell others that they were quick to get baptized. We saw this in chapter 2. We'll see it again in the next section next week when we study the Ethiopian and the desert. And again, this, this just flies in the face of the opposition and the potential persecution that was out there. There was a genuine passion immediately to be open about their faith and a complete lack of hesitation to be baptized. Some believers have been saved 10, 20, 30 years, never been baptized. And, and I hear countless reasons why, why they can't. But I want to tell you this morning, this is a strong argument that when you get saved, you immediately publicly identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That if your heart's really changed, that you need to declare that to people. And then second, the text suggests that at this point in Christian history, and this is a bit of a mystery, is that the apostles were still the only ones who had the authority to bestow the Holy Spirit on people by the laying on of their hands. Now, I've studied that throughout the week. I've tried to find an answer for it. I've looked at commentaries. I've talked to pastors. I've tried to understand this. I've asked the Lord for discernment. And it's not explained here by the Spirit why that was true at that time. What we do see is that it's not repeated in the New Testament. So there are, we have to accept that there are just some things that, that the Lord doesn't fully reveal to us or that we don't fully understand. But the point here is not to get distracted. Later texts suggest that Acts chapter 8 is unique because the Holy Spirit indwells from salvation. Keep your place here. Turn over to the book of Titus for a minute. You haven't been in Titus in a while, have you? Ooh, that was... Yes, I haven't, Paul, but I will this week. I'll study it thoroughly. Titus chapter 3. Let's affirm this for a minute. Romans 8 says that we receive the Spirit when we're adopted as God's children. This text in Titus 3 talks about the, the intertwined connection between regeneration and renewing. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. He saved us, speaking of Christ, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, that completely throws the works argument out the window, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, declared righteous by God through his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, verse 5 says that we are saved by faith in Christ. Not by works, not by anything we've done that looks righteous, but only by faith in the mercy of Christ. And that by his mercy, he regenerates us. Regenerate is a great word. It means new birth or new life. So God gives us a new life. We're born again. The phrase was big in the 70s. We're born again. God makes us a different creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So we're regenerated when we trust in the mercy of God and we trust in Christ as Savior. God 
births us again spiritually. And then it says that at the same time, the Holy Spirit renews us. The word literally means renovation. I want you to think about this like a house. And I've hesitated to use this illustration because I don't want you to think I'm being flippant in any way. I just think it's a good way to illustrate it. How many have seen those home makeover shows? All right, on the home makeover shows, they take a house that is falling apart, that is relatively uninhabitable, and that really has no business holding anybody, and they change it into something spectacular. When we trust in Christ, Titus 3, God takes us from being condemned to being a house that He says, I'm declaring this saved. And then the Holy Spirit moves in and occupies us and makes us His home, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit, and then He begins the work of transformation. That's Titus 3, 6. You have been born again. God's declared you going from condemned to saved. And now His Spirit moves in and renews. His Spirit renovates us. His Spirit changes us. We're declared righteous. We're given a new nature. We're given a new lease on eternal life. And then He says, i got some work to do with you. And gradually, spectacularly, the Holy Spirit renovates. And I want you to notice in verse 6 something else it says. It says that the Spirit is poured out richly on us. Not later, not in 20 years, but as soon as Christ is our Savior, there is no delay when we are justified by the grace of God, we're made heirs of eternal life, and the Spirit moves in. Now that truth is our confidence. And it's our theology. And it's why we shouldn't be confused, if you turn back to Acts 8 now, it's why we shouldn't be be confused by this passage Because there are a few possible reasons why the Lord did it this way at this time. Remember that the church was still very young. And the gospel was still very fresh to people. And the apostles were still new in their role. It's important to notice that other than Acts 9, we'll see that in a couple weeks, where Ananias lays hands on Paul so his sight can be restored, and Acts 19 where Paul lays his hands on 12 Ephesian men who apparently didn't know about the Holy Spirit, there is no other evidence in the New Testament of people laying hands and someone receiving the Holy Spirit. What we see throughout the rest of the New Testament is any time they laid hands, it was for the purpose of commissioning. Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy 1. He says, I laid my hands on you as you received the gift of ministry so that you would be commissioned and established and set apart for ministry. So this, we have to conclude, from the evidence and from the lack of evidence, is unique to Acts 8. Now, why did God do that? I believe there are two reasons. Number one, I believe it validated the ministry of the apostles as the ones set apart as the founders of the early church. Because it had grown so big, so fast, and when you go from 120 to 25,000, there have to be people that are angling, right? So God says, "Uh uh-uh, make sure you know, these are the men that walked with me. These are the women that prayed to me. These are the ones who trusted me. This is the first wave. 
you need to understand that I've set them apart as the founders of my church. And second, I believe that it proved an authentication of people's sincere commitment to Christ. Because as we see in verses 18 to 24, there were people who professed Christ and were baptized, and yet their hearts were still full of sin. And Simon's proof of that. Notice in the text, when you get to verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, it doesn't, doesn't say in the text that Philip had laid his hands on Simon. It just says that Simon watched what was happening and he said to himself, if I could appropriate that gift, listen now, I could make some money. If I had the gift of being able to lay hands and people receiving the Holy Spirit, I could make that a little side business. That could be a little racket for me. If he had been genuine in his desire to be filled by the Spirit, listen now, and if he had been genuine in his desire to be one of the ones that had the power of God to put his hand on somebody and the Holy Spirit would come in, then he never would have gone to Peter and John and said, I got some cash, and if I could just give you this cash and you would give me that gift, we'd be great. If he really wanted the Holy Spirit to appropriate and control his life, and he really wanted to be used in powerful ways for the glory of God, he never would have come with some money and said, I'll buy that gift. He simply would have said, I surrender myself before God. I, I want to receive His Spirit. I trust Him. I've confessed Him publicly. Please give me the Spirit. Someone who says, I want this job, I want that job. I want to have that authority. I want that gift. That, that person's heart is not right. And Peter says that. He says, your heart's not right before God. You're still functioning like an old man. Controlled by sin and selfish desire rather than surrendering yourself fully to Christ and being regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. See, Simon saw Christianity as a means to an end. Money, power, control. Instead of saying, the only means that Christianity is for me is so I can praise my God and tell others about Him. I don't care if anybody notices me. I don't care if I have that gift. I'm not going to go up and give you money or beg and say, well, I want that too. I feel left out. Why didn't you include me? No, that's not, what he, that's not what a believer says. A believer says, I'm nothing. The grace of God is everything. I deserve absolutely zero. So anything God gives me is wonderful. Praise His name. And if God wants me to use me this way, great. If He doesn't want me to be used that way, great. Praise His name. God wants me to lead, great. If He doesn't want me to leave, great. If He wants me to sing, great. If He wants me to stand in the back, great. It doesn't matter because I'm about Him. I want to serve Him. I want to bring praise to Him. See, Simon's biggest offense was that he was anxious to have the honor of an apostle, but he wasn't at all interested in being filled with the Spirit and having the character and witness of a Christian. There's no substitute for that. There, there, there is no amount of money or good works that can buy a heart that is surrendered to the Lord and walks with the Spirit of Christ. I don't want you to think that this text, and we're done, I don't want you to think this, is, this text is about the power to convert the Spirit. 
This text is about the distinctiveness of how spirit-filled Peter and John were themselves. And Simon didn't really want that. If he had wanted that, that's a problem. If he had wanted that, if he had really wanted to be filled with the Spirit and used of God at God's discretion for God's glory, if he had really wanted that, that would have been what he would ask for. Because he saw evidence of other people receiving the Spirit and he didn't want to be under the Spirit's control. He wanted to control the Spirit and that's a huge difference and it plays out in our lives in many different ways. It's a matter of overvaluing ourselves. It's a matter of self-promotion, of getting our way, of faith on our own terms, of only wanting to live in a way that is comfortable for us and when we do that, listen, it means we're undervaluing the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what this whole incident with Simon illustrates. A mind that's still craving the things of the world. A mind that's still dictating, God, this is how I want it to be. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man, someone who is still sinful, someone who still wants to satisfy themselves first, that that person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. He can't understand them. In other words, it doesn't matter. Hear me carefully here. It doesn't matter if you've declared yourself a Christian or if you've been baptized, if your heart is not sincere. It doesn't matter if you've done all those things, if you continue to live for yourself rather than live for God. The Bible calls that a form of godliness and it's a mockery of God's grace. I know that's hard and I know that's harsh and I struggled even before I came up to, to think that I was going to say those words. But this is what God is illustrating. Maybe that's why He does it this way just this one time with the apostles laying their hands and conferring the Spirit. Just so we could learn this lesson. Is our heart right before God? If it isn't, if, if our heart is this way, in that chronic dissatisfaction, in that selfishness, in that self-orientation, if it's, if it's that way this morning, then there are only two responses. And we see them here in the text. And we'll pray. First, verse 22. The only first response is to repent. This is, applies to all of us. I don't care how long you've been saved, how much you love Christ. When you fall back into sin, when I fall back into sin... There's only one response, verse 22, to repent. When we confess the Lord is faithful, praise His name, the Lord is just, I'm glad He is, to forgive our sin, everybody say praise the Lord. To forgive our sin, tell me the rest with me, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is not stingy. When we go to Him with a sincere heart and we say, Lord, I love You, I've served You a long time, I trust in You, but I have sinned and I confess it to You and I am sorry. God says, I will forgive you, I will cleanse you, and I will change your heart. That's what Peter says. Pray that the intention of your heart will change from carnal to spiritual, from selfish to to spirit-filled, how does that happen? It happens through that word repentance. And as we repent, second and finally, 
we must continue to call on Him for mercy. Sin is so enticing and the appeal for us to live for ourselves is so pervasive that we need to constantly be at the throne of grace saying, Lord, protect my heart. Keep me safe. Keep me true. All I want to live for is to live for you. Lord, Lord, keep my heart set on you. We don't know what happened to Simon. Scripture doesn't tell us. But they say, pray. Pray that your heart will stay set on Christ. And Simon says a good thing in verse 24. He says, please pray for me to prevent my heart from falling back into sin. Let's close our eyes for a minute. Some of you this morning, be very still now. Some of you may need to pray one of those prayers this morning. Maybe your heart has slipped back. Maybe right now you're caught in a sin. Nobody knows it. You'd be embarrassed if anybody did. So you keep it secret. But you keep on going in it. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying you're not walking with the Lord. And you know it. And God's been convicting you to turn back from that sin. But you've been resistant. You've got a selfish motive. I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know if I'm talking to anybody this morning. But if that's you. Right now, you need to go to the throne of grace. And you need to repent of it. And ask God to change your heart. Ask him to protect you from falling back into that sin. Because it's stripping your joy. The spirit is not full in your life. Because you're not letting go of it. And even right now, the devil's encouraging you to fight what I'm saying. You will never experience joy. You will never experience contentment as long as you hold on to that. You need to get rid of it. And I pray this morning you would submit yourself to the Lord. Confess that to Him. Maybe you don't know Him at all. I don't know everybody here this morning. I'm glad you're visiting if you are. Maybe you just wandered in. You don't even know why. I pray the Lord spoke to you. Right now, he's offering you salvation. He's offering you freedom from the bondage of sin. There is no greater gift that you could ever get, and it's eternal. So wherever your heart is this morning, however you've been resisting the Lord, we all have been there. I resisted the Lord. Randy resisted the Lord. Every one of us has resisted the Lord at some point. But God offers you salvation. He offers you deliverance. It's all based on Jesus Christ. You will never be saved by your own works. So right now I pray that if that's you, that you would call out to the Lord in your heart and say, God, save me. Deliver me. I have opposed you. And Lord, I confess that. I confess my sin to you. I, I, I need your deliverance. I need your salvation you do that this morning, if you're praying that right now, I would encourage you after the service, come up and talk to me or talk to Randy or talk to the person next to you. Say, I need to know more about this, what it means to be saved. We'll talk to you. We'll pray for you. We'll give you information.
But don't walk out of this room this morning away from the Lord. He's faithful. He is true. He's designed you in His own image. He sent His Son to inhabit a body that looks just like ours. He fulfilled the law. He died for your sin and my sin. And He rose again to defeat it. He reigns forever. He is the Lord and King. Every knee someday will bow to Him. He's the only God. This morning, I encourage you and implore you, turn your heart to Him. Father, we thank You this morning that we can do that. We thank You this morning that Your grace is sufficient for all our fears and all our failures. That You're not stingy with Your mercy, Lord, but that You are abundant. That You don't hold back Your Spirit and tell us, just figure it out, that you pour out your spirit richly on us to show us how to live. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would challenge our hearts. I pray that you would change us, every single one of us, in some way. That we would break free. And Lord, that you would do a new work in our lives. We thank you that you are willing, Lord. And we thank you that you are able. We praise you and exalt you. And declare our love for you because you first loved us. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.